are currently in a series called God Chose Who, where we're taking a look at the book of Genesis, and 75% of the book of Genesis is about three people, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. And I just kind of think of all the things that God could have addressed in the first book of the Bible, it's interesting that he makes it about people. But really, you begin to understand God's heart for people. And what's amazing about the Bible, we don't say this enough, it is probably the most honest religious text on the earth today because it doesn't edit or Photoshop people's lives. In fact, it goes to great length to preserve the humanity. And you see, wow, God chose these people. God works through these people. And then you can say, I am these people. And God has chosen me. And he wants to work through me because he's got a plan for my life. And no matter what you've done, what you're doing, or what you will do, can, can make the plan of God ineffective for your life. God will never run away from you. God knew what he was getting before he got it. He chose you, and if you want to participate in that plan, you can. And that's why I love these stories. So far, we've talked about Isaac, or excuse me, Abraham and Isaac, and, and that story. Last week, we talked about Jacob which was Abraham's grandson, uh, stealing something from his brother and the deception that went on. Today, I kind of want to skip ahead a little bit. I want to talk about uh, Jacob's, one of Jacob's sons. He had many sons named Judah. And this interesting story uh, with him and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, I want to give just kind of a, a uh, not a warning, but just a mindset. If you have children here today, it doesn't bother me, but the scripture is pretty blunt. All right. What do you mean by that? What I mean is uh, it doesn't really pull any punches. Uh, and so uh, if you're cool with answering some questions when you get home, uh, that's fine with me. But I, I just want you to know uh, I'm going to read it as it says. I'm not going to try to minimize it or, or, or take things away from it to make it more palatable. It just is what it is. Going back to that honesty of the scripture. What we have in this story is we have Judah, who, as I said, was a son of Jacob. Jacob had many sons. All of Jacob's sons, except for Joseph, uh, ended up becoming what God calls the tribes of Israel. God took a son and said, out of this line, he broke the, the community up into tribes. Judah is the tribe with, with who Jesus came from. Jesus in the scripture is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a man that God chose through whom his family line, Jesus, would come. Very fascinating. Now, we've been looking each week and saying, wow, God, you chose these people given what they have done. And it's important to understand about Judah. Judah was part of this uh, plot with his brothers. See, they, they uh, were jealous of uh, Joseph. Joseph, and we'll come back to this but, next week, but I want you to understand, they were jealous of Joseph because Joseph was Jacob's favorite. It, it reads like a soap opera, I know. And so they plotted. They said, hey, we could kill him. But Judah's like, no, 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 we can't kill him. Let's fake his death, sell him into slavery, and then go back home and tell our father that Joseph died. That's what Judah's a part of. He's a part of that. And then we find here in chapter 38, he's left his family. He's living amongst the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a really evil people. They had a perspective of the world that was, let's say, not in line with our current Christian thought. For example, one of the things they had was temple worship. What is a temple worship? They had temple prostitutes. And it was considered an act of worship to have sex with a temple prostitute. It was like accepted. You're like, I never heard that religion before. That's what they did. And it was fairly common throughout Scripture, even into the New Testament with Paul at Corinth talking to them. They would worship their gods by having sex with the temple prostitutes. 
they had this big festival every year, and this is going to be part of the story, where they would shear their, their, their livestock, because that's what they did. But this party was like Woodstock. I mean, they would come together, yeah, they would work hard, but the, the drinks would be flowing, the love would be flowing, and it was, it was pretty crazy time that they would celebrate. Judah is living among these people. God had said, don't intermarry with these people because they will be a corrupting force morally within your family. Judah has decided that he's going to marry a Canaanite woman. That's where we pick up this story, okay? I want to read to you, and we're going to unveil the story at stages throughout the message and ask the question, what do we learn? But here's the first 11 verses. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Er. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. And at the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kezib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Er, to marry a young woman named Tamar. She too was a Canaanite, just so you know. But Er was wicked man in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Er's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. Let's pause here. They had this custom there, which eventually became law. Not saying that God sanctioned this, but this is what they practiced in their culture. That if a boy, young man, married a woman and died before he was able to give her a son, not a daughter, a son, it was the custom, the next son in line, that, that guy's brother, had to marry that woman and give her a son, and the son that she had would not be considered the, his son, but the brother who died. The woman had no choice in this. Not again, not saying this is what you know, God wanted for women, but women were at the mercy of their husbands, and whenever the brother died, if there was another brother She was automatically engaged to that brother. She didn't have a choice. And she was 100% dependent upon that man for her livelihood. If she did not have a husband, more than likely she would be marginalized as a widow and be in abject poverty. So heir dies. Judah says, Tamar, you're now going to marry my son Onan. And Onan, you're going to give her a son, an heir, for your brother to keep the family line going. This was a custom. This was an obligation. It's something they had to take responsibility for. Here's what happens. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse, here's the blunt part, with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother, so the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would die also like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Anybody ever seen this movie? I mean, this is, this is interesting to say the least. And it's important, like there's things we could talk about, like God intervening and the wickedness of Aaron to Onan's life and, and taking their life. And we don't have time to unpack that all. But this was a culture of people at the time who were increasingly wicked. And so when, when Judah says to, to Onan, you're going to marry Tamar, she is at his mercy and she does it. But Onan refuses to impregnate her. 
in the text, we understand that this happened more than once, that every time he had intercourse with her, he refused to give her a child and to give his brother an heir, meaning that Onan was simply using Tamar for sexual gratification and not fulfilling an obligation, moral obligation, a responsibility that he had. God saw that as incredibly wicked, and God took his life. So now Tamar is married to two of Judah's sons, and they both end up dead. He said, I got one more. I got one more son. I don't know about this Tamar girl. So he sends her back to her family underneath the guise of, once my youngest son is old enough, I'll send for you, and you can marry. She was automatically engaged by the custom. She had no choice. I want you to understand this. It wasn't like there was an agreement between her and Judah that now she could just go live her life. No, she had to go live with her father and wait. And wait. She had nothing. She had no job. She had no security. She was engaged. She couldn't even, by law, in that culture, end the engagement and go find someone else. She was damaged goods, effectively. Not saying that God has said, this is what I want for women. It's just a revealing, a revelation of the culture at the time. And if I step back and I ask, what do we learn? I think the first thing we learn in this story is the power of responsibility. The power of responsibility. I want to read to you the next part of the story. The plot thickens, all right? (laughs) Verses 12 through 19. Some years later, Judah's wife died. Remember, Judah is the father, okay? There's a lot of people going on in the story. After the time of mourning was over, Judah went to his friend, the same friend at the beginning, and said, Hildomite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. This is where they had this big festival. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So there's been enough time passed that Tamar knows that Shelah is old enough to marry, but Judah has not fulfilled his promise or his responsibility. So she changed out of her widow's clothing. Hear that. She wore a garment that told everyone she came into contact with that she was a widow. They didn't get to ask. They didn't have to inquire. Her clothing told them everything that she needed. Her clothing defined her social status and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that that was his daughter-in-law. She said, how much will you pay to have sex with me? I'll send you a young goat from my flock. Good, she's worth a goat. She says, but what are you going to give me to guarantee that you'll send me that goat? He said, what kind of guarantee do you want? She said, well, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you're carrying. That's kind of like, okay, I want your license. I want your social security card. And if you got your passport, give that to me too. Three most important forms of identification you can have. And what does he say? Yes. Why? He's a guy. So Judah gave them to her. They had inter- he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. After she went back home, she took off her veil and put on her widow- widow's clothing as usual. Now, this is like right out of the movies. I mean, this is like a story. I mean, this is a novel, right? This is thick, plot, crazy stuff going on. The power of responsibility. Judah thought that by sending Tamar away... He could preserve the life of his son 
And he could also not have to deal with the, the situation at hand. He probably thought, now I'm speculating, he probably thought, I can deal with Tamar by just distancing myself from her and not taking responsibility for what my son Onan had done, has done. He refused to give her an heir. He's also going to have to figure out how Shayla can carry on the family name, and that's probably going to happen by marrying him to somebody else. Tamar's position is she is desperate. She is dependent upon Judah for her livelihood. Dependent upon Judah. See, in that culture and in that time, for a woman to have children was important, but for a woman to have a boy was even more important. So she devises a plan. I'm not saying it's God's plan. I'm just saying she's really creative. She's smarter than Judah. She knows that she has to do something because she's being taken advantage of. The power of responsibility. What, what, what's responsibility? We can, I looked it up. I thought it would be interesting. There's three definitions I pulled. Here's the one. Responsibility is the state or fact of having a duty to deal with something or having control over someone. Judah had a duty, and Judah had power and control over Tamar in her life. It's also the state or fact of being accountable or to blame for something. Whenever you assume responsibility for something, you're assuming responsibility for the success, and you're on the hook for its failure. Here's the third one. A moral obligation to behave correctly toward or in respect of. Responsibility. As I look out across the landscape of our current culture, here's one thing I don't see. I don't, think, I don't see a lot of people taking responsibility, and I definitely don't see the leaders of our country taking responsibility. I see a lot of people pointing fingers. I see a lot of people assigning blame. How refreshing would it be for someone to stand up and say, this is what happened, I take responsibility for it, and this is what we're going to do. Come on. I am sick and tired of finger pointing. It does not take a leader to point a finger. It takes a leader to take responsibility. That's one of the things that I think we all need to do a much better job of is to take responsibility. But here's the thing about responsibility. It's rarely convenient. It's almost never comfortable. And we really don't desire it. Oh, we desire the benefits of responsibility. But do we desire the responsibility of responsibility. And there's only two decisions when it comes to responsibility. You can accept it or you can avoid it. That's it. You can accept responsibility or you can avoid responsibility. And either way, there's a consequence to the decision. If you accept it, you got a whole bunch of things to deal with. If you avoid it, you got a lot of things to deal with. I think responsibility and avoiding it is like compounding interest. Everybody knows what compounding interest is, right? If you don't, you need to learn it because it's going to help you financially. In 10th grade, I had a math teacher that took an entire week, Algebra 2, talked on investing. I thought it was the most boring week of my life. But it stuck. He made a statement there that I'll never forget. He said, Einstein said that compounding interest was the most powerful force in the face of the earth. Now, I think, Matt, did you make a slide? Okay. I, I, I said this off the cuff in first service, and afterwards, Matt said, I can give you a slide for that. I said, great, Matt, do you do it? I think he figured it out in his head. He's really smart. If you took $5,000... Invested it at, let's say, 18, let it sit for 30 years at a S&P average return of 10%. You know what a $5,000 investment with nothing else invested into it turns into? What does that say? $87,000. 
247.1%. Like, you can let it sit there, put five grand in, let compounding interest work its magic, and see what happens. Now, that's great mathematically, and that's great financially, but that's not great when it comes to avoiding responsibility. It grows. Because here's the thing. You will either be responsible or you will be made to be responsible. Avoiding responsibility is simply just passing it down the line. It's passing the buck. It's pushing it far. I heard this quote. I thought it was really good. It is not only for what we do that we are held responsible, but also for what we do not do. Not only for what we do, but also for what we do not do that we are held responsible. I would venture to say that there are areas in our lives right now that we need to take some responsibility for. Now, I'm not talking about someone else. I'm not talking about pointing the finger because we can talk all day long about how our neighbor, our brother, our sister, our mother, and our friend need to take responsibility. What about us? What about us? What about our health? Right? Well, it's just my genes. Just my genes, you know? My, my mom, my grandma died, my grandpa died, and I just got the fat gene. I'm going to be fat. I'm going to die. I have heart. No. I mean, that's maybe part of it, but you can take responsibility for how you eat, how much you move, how much you don't move how much you do eat and how much you don't eat. You can take some responsibility for that, right? Yep. You can make some changes. But finances, we can take some responsibility how we spend our money. Do we have a budget? Do we know how much we make? Do we know how much we spend? Because money just spends itself. It's really good at it. It comes into the account and it goes out of the account. And we say, where'd it go? <laughs> right? Well, I don't make enough and my job, this. and No, 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 no. Some of those things may be true. But victims, take, victims don't take responsibility. Overcomers do. You may be a victim of something, but how long are you going to be a victim? What victims want to do is point the finger and blame it on somebody else. Victims are really good at pointing out other people's problems. And if someone would have done, and if that person would have done, and it doesn't deny the truth of, or the reality of what happened to you, but how long are you going to sit there? Take some responsibility. Because if you avoid it, Compounding interest. Take some responsibility in our marriages and in our relationships. Well, they did. What did you do? There's a two-way street to every problem. Every problem. And, and, and maybe you say, okay, not, those, are, those are things that are external from us. How about just our words? What if we started taking responsibility for what we said? Nothing has destroyed that more than social media. And social media didn't do it. We give social media a bad name. It's just human nature. Social media gave us the opportunity to say what we were really thinking. I heard, this, I heard this stat the other day. They were talking about politics, and they were saying, you know, some people are saying that the, the, the last administration divided the country, you know, the Obama administration. Some were saying, no, 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 the Trump administration is dividing the country. And the person was saying, look, we need to understand something. It's not the Obama administration or the Trump administration. It's the human heart. Google data, they've been collecting Google data for however many years. What they've been revealing is is that it's just in the last few years with the rise of social media that people were saying what they always thought. But go back before that, Google searches, people were searching racist things, divisive things. It just wasn't culturally appropriate to talk about it. Nothing new happened, people. We just started being honest through a form of communication that we felt was safe, to be honest. A form of communication that doesn't make us take responsibility. Because when you're face-to-face, you have to take responsibility. What are you saying? 
Take responsibility for your actions. I think one of the, the things that we're doing that can be detrimental for our children is not making them take responsibility. If your kid screws up, make them own it. Don't protect them, make them own it. There are elements of protection. Stop trying, and I need help with this too. May we stop trying to explain away our children's mistakes. It's by mistakes that we learn. Make them take responsibility because when they get older, if they don't have, if never had to take responsibility and someone always swooped in and fixed the problem, they're not going to be contributing members of society. They're going to be our politicians. <laughs> and our teachers and our lawyers and our gas station attendants and whatever. Right? Because we have not taking responsibility. Because we think that if we can avoid it, somehow it's just going to fix itself. I think that's the second thing that we learn in this story is that messes don't clean themselves up. Messes don't clean themselves up. The question I would ask before we move on to the second point is this, what area of my life do I need to take responsibility for? And coupled with that is what area in my life am I avoiding responsibility? Hoping it gets better. Waiting for the mess to clean itself up. I want to read this to you. Here's the next part of the story. It says, Later, Judah asked his friend, Hira the Adulamite, to take the young goat to the woman and pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. So Judah's going to make good on his promise. I want my stuff back. Tamar, I don't know your Tamar. Here's your goat. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting at the entrance to the road? They said, we never had a shrine prostitute here. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. The men in the village claimed they never had a prostitute. He said, then let her keep the things I gave her. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but, couldn't, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back again to look for her. Judah said, look, I tried to make good on my promise, but I'm not about to have the shame and the disgrace of people finding out what I did. We tried. Worked out. About three months later, though, Judas told, Hey, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute, and now because of this she's present, pregnant. Here's what Judas says. Bring her out and let her be burned. Some commentators say that it's not that she would be burned at the stake, but it's more kind of like a, uh, anybody ever read the Scarlet Letter in high school or college where she was branded. They would brand her cheek as a prostitute. Some say, no, she would have been burned completely. Either way, Judah is like all over this because he's like, hey, this can solve the problem forever. I'll never have to deal with Tamar again. My son won't have to deal with her. Hey, this is going to work out. He's got what he needs to ultimately avoid responsibility. But don't you love Tamar? She's a fighter. (laughs) But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Whose license is this? Whose social security card is this? Whose passport is this? Oh, yeah, Judah. <laughs> Judah recognized them immediately. And he said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And then it says, and Judah never slept with Tamar again. Well, congratulations, Judah. I'm glad you made that decision. <laughs> we were all wondering. Look at that. If you, don't be, if you aren't responsible, you'll be made to be responsible. And it will be broadcast. Compounding interest. 
587 by pushing it down the line. Here's the simple fact. There are parts of our lives or times in our lives where we're just going to have to deal with messy stuff. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to. Nobody wants to, but we will be made to deal with the mess. And here's what's hard. We can look at our situations and say, but yeah, but I didn't make that mess. You're right. But because someone came before you and didn't clean it up, it's now your responsibility. Well, I don't agree with that. That's fine. It's not fair. You're right. But here's reality. Either you're going to deal with it or your kids are. Or your coworker, or someone else down the line is going to have to deal with it. And there are messes that are in front of us, that are behind us, that are to the left or to the right of us. And the simple fact is we are just going to have to deal with them. Like I said, there's two ways to deal with responsibility, accept it or avoid it. There's also only two ways to deal with a mess. You can cover it up or you can uncover it. A lot of us want to cover it up, which in the long run is more work. It's more work to cover up your mess because it's perpetual, right? You get it covered and somebody comes in like, oh, what's that? Oh, it's nothing. No, you cover it up. You, you minimize it. You deny like it never happened. You deny the, rea- the effect that it's having on the present, right? Whereas if you uncover it, You just make a decision to acknowledge it. Hey, there's a mess here, or here, or here, or here. And it, it, yeah, it's a mess. And then you just be honest about the mess. Don't try to minimize it. Don't try to make it seem like it's not really what it is. And, oh, well, they didn't understand, and I didn't understand. And, yeah, there's there's explanations for days, right? We can can go all around it. We can dance around it, but it's it's, it's still there, you know? When Carson was three... He made a mess. And if you can believe that, he made a mess. And he didn't want to clean it up. He was three, but I'm like, you're going to clean this up, man. And he's like, do I have to? And his three-year-old thing, why can't you? And I picked him up, and I I wasn't mad. I picked him up, just so you wouldn't think I was mad. I picked him up, and I set him on the counter, and at three, and I remember Lauren watching me. I was having this very serious conversation. I said, son, you cannot live your life making messes and expecting other people to come and clean them up. And he was like, can I have more milk? You know, like. But I thought, at three, he needs to learn. He's almost eight, and he still doesn't want to clean his messes. Right? It's like born into us to make a mess and move on and make another mess and move on and just hoping somebody will come and clean it up. But we can't do that. Messes that go unclean just fester and become dirtier and bigger. And we have to make the decision, am I going to cover things up or am I going to uncover things in my life? I'm not asking you to go to the people that you know and start ripping the covers off of their messes. I bet you're really good at that because I'm really good at that. But I'm asking you to start taking a look at your life and saying, look, I'm going to stop covering things up and I'm just going to start uncovering it and being honest about it because I'm only as free as I am honest. There are things in your life Walls that you keep hitting, patterns that you keep repeating. And you're like, where is this coming from? From a mess. From a mess that you created, from a mess that someone else created, and it's time to address the mess. But I would just give you a word of wisdom. Don't address the mess on social media, please. I don't want to hear about your mess on social media. Here's why. Because it really means that we want sympathy and we want someone else to fix it when we put it out there. And people are, are going to give you all kinds of crazy stuff on social media. 
Get someone you trust. Maybe you need to go to a counselor. Maybe it starts with talking to your spouse or to a good friend where you're saying, look, hey, this is the mess. And you know what's so wonderful? I just think there's such a, a release and a, it freshens the air when people are honest. Hey, here's my mess. It looks pretty bad. Yeah, you don't know the half of it. This happened and that happened and just like, yeah. And then it just kind of dissolves tension, doesn't it? Because those people, what they want you to do is to deny it and then all kinds of stuff. You're like, no, that's what happened. You don't have to give them every detail, but you're like, hey, this has happened. Every time you're honest about it, little, little step of freedom, little step of freedom, lifting that cover, lifting that cover, sweeping it in, tossing it in the trash, sweeping it in, tossing it in the trash. You can uncover messes or you can keep covering up. The choice is yours. But I'm telling you, when the cover's ripped off and you weren't in control of the cover being pulled off, it's going to be much bigger than you wanted it to be. Because there the situation's going to be. Well, whose is this? And whose is this? And whose is this? And then you're going to have to deal with it. Some things we're unaware of, but there are other things that we're very aware of. And I would just encourage you to begin to pull the cover off. And I know it's difficult, and you know you have to be vulnerable, and it's probably going to going to open up some painful things, but I guarantee you God is going to be with you along the way to help you because he's not interested in rolling you around in that mess to make you more dirty. He's interested in helping you clean it up and helping you take responsibility and bringing people and things into your life to give you a strategy and a pattern and a, and a paradigm or whatever to move forward because that's who he is. Because that's the last thing I would leave you with today. The same point I left you with last week is, is that God redeems. What does redeem mean? He saves, he delivers, and he rescues. To get the full end of this story, we have to go all the way to Matthew chapter 1. But I, I just want to read to you the, the last part of this story and take you to Matthew 1. It says that when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. And while she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand, and the midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing this one came out first. The reason they did that was to identify the firstborn son, so that, that firstborn had more of a, a share in the blessing. But then he pulled his hand back in, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. And then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah. I find it interesting Tamar had to suffer the loss of two husbands, and now she gets two sons. Two sons. Sons that were born in a very questionable way from her father-in-law, who thought she was a prostitute, who she tricked, and da-da-da-da-da, and craziness. But you want to know how good God is? Because if I'm, I'm God, right, which I'm not, pretty close, but I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> if, if I were him, I'm not choosing Judah, to say, hey, my son Jesus is going to be born in his family line. Like if I'm God and I'm going to put in the scripture the, the lineage of Jesus, I'm going to pick the best people, right? I'm going to edit out the people who I don't want to be in there. But listen to this. This is Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of, genealogy of Jesus. It's the thing that we turn to in Matthew and we skip to get to the good stuff, <laughs> right? Because we're like, there's like 41 people here. But, but it tells the story. Listen to this. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Perez is like, I don't know, seven great-grandpas to David. But you want to know what's beautiful? 
in that culture and in that time, women were never included in, in lineages, ever. They didn't make the cut. Women were seen more as property and not as, as valuable as men. That's not what God intended. That's just the culture. Here we have, again, the Bible being honest and breaking convention. And God says, I'm going to include in the family line of Jesus Tamar. Here's the thing about Tamar. She wasn't even a Hebrew. She was a Canaanite woman. She was a woman who deceived her husband. And God includes her in the family line of Jesus. And more more importantly, he also includes Perez, who is, again, born out of a crazy situation. You'll read a little bit further in the lineage of Jesus. You find another woman. Her name's Rahab. She's a foreigner. She's a prostitute. You read a little bit further, you get Ruth, the grandmother of David. She's a Moabite who was at, they were at war with Israel. They were a corrupting force in Israel too. God includes these three women, but specifically Tamar. What does he do? He publicly acknowledges her as part of his family. That's the goodness and the grace of God. As I look at this story, I say, you know what? I, I, I find myself in Judah and in Tamar. I find maybe not action for action, but in my thought process and, and in, in how I've lived my life. And I say, wow, look what they did. And it was crazy. But yet look how God carried out his purpose in them and through them and then publicly acknowledges them. And what I see is this, is that when Jesus came on this earth, right, he came, meaning he was incarnated into this earth. He was born as a human being. He lived the life. And what Jesus did is says, I see the responsibility of humanity, this responsibility for them being destructive and sinning, and I am going to accept what they have avoided and ultimately cannot accept. And I see the mess, and I'm not going to cover it. I'm going to uncover it and get into the middle of it and clean it up. He says, I will accept, and I will uncover what you are unable to because I am taking responsibility. He had this moral obligation. He behaved correctly towards you and I. Not behaved how we thought he would behave, or maybe would even desire, but he behaved correctly so that when God sees you and I and he sees the mess and he sees all the things that we avoided, he ultimately says, I will take responsibility for that and I will give you my life. And he sets us free and publicly acknowledges us as being part of the family of God. If you look at this story, Tamar is not really mentioned again. Judah, you don't really hear of anything that he did that would redeem himself. Tell me what they've done to earn God's favor. Nothing. Because it's not something that we earn. It's something that we receive in the light of everything that we've done. God wants us to be ultimately free and open and honest before him. But what some of us do is what we do is like Tamar. We disguise ourselves. We do things that maybe we normally wouldn't do so we can be accepted, so we can get what we want, and we are living a double life. Some of us are living a double life before God because we think he wants us to act a certain way and be a certain way so it'll give us certain things. Some of us walk out of these doors and we're completely different people out there than we are in here. And here's what I would say to you as a pastor. Just be you. Be honest. I don't want to see a show. I'm not putting on a show. I don't want to hear how good everything is all the time and how perfect you may be. Not that you're always telling me that, but don't feel like you've got to put a show on here and talk a certain way and dress a certain way. Be you because God sees it all. We don't hide anything from him. 
He sees it all. And he accepts you and he loves you. And he says, look, you don't have to live that life anymore. You don't have to veil yourself. You don't have to clothe yourself. Just be you. And I will acknowledge you and acknowledge me. Saying, acknowledge me. It's something that we receive. Why? Because God redeems it all. So whatever you have done, whatever you are doing, and whatever you may be thinking about doing, just know this. It's not bigger than God. God isn't going to want to run away from you. In fact, he wants to take it and he wants to redeem you and he wants to help you. But it's something that you just have to participate in. He's done all the work in the person of Jesus. And I think that's why Matthew chapter one is one of the most important texts in all of scripture. You see the family of Jesus and you see this. My name can be, is, God wants it to be in there as well. He could have just said, there were a whole bunch of people. Here's Jesus. But he names them specifically. And then you recognize names and you go back into the annals of scripture and you say, whoa, this was their life and they made it? Sometimes we, we look at the people in scripture and we tend, to, we tend to elevate their lives to a place of immortality or something. When really, no, the Bible just keeps it real. I told you it was an honest book. It's incredibly honest. And it's not only honest about who you were, it's, all, it's honest about who we are and who God wants us to be. And I want you, excuse me, to have the perspective and the belief that God has chosen me, that God has a plan for me. He wants me to know him. He wants me to find freedom in every area of my life. He wants to help me discover the reason that he created me and then to go make a difference in this world, warts, scars, mistakes, and all. And he redeems all of those things and it becomes part of your story. It becomes part of your connection or connectability to someone else. And you can say, look, I was here, but God, but God, but God. And will we give him a chance? And finally, if we can see God in that light, that he's good and that he's gracious and that he's for us and not against us, we can say, help me, Lord, to take responsibility. Help me to accept it, not run from it. Help me, Lord, to uncover the painful, hard things from my past, the messes that either I made or someone else made, and just give me the grace and the courage and the strength to begin to walk forward and be completely free, completely free. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person that's in here. Lord, we, we take a look at the story of Judah and Tamar, and we shake our heads, and, and we're just like, wow. But then we get all the way to Matthew, and we see that, wow. They're, they're part of your family and you would acknowledge them. And I just pray right now that there would just be such a sense of your grace in this place that you say, you acknowledge us and you want us to be part of your family. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, help us to take responsibility. Help us to be people who uncover the realities of our lives, not cover up, to be people of truth and integrity. And as we stand up, may we not point a finger, but may we accept responsibility and lead through Father, we just thank you for this week, everything that you're doing. Bless us this week. Keep us safe. Provide for our needs. And we just pray a special blessing on the Cardinals in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you. Have a good week.